seats and grabbing your Bibles as you do, uh, head on over to the book of Hebrews. We are going to be looking this morning at uh, Hebrews chapter 10 specifically, but I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 1 before we get to 10. We'll skip forward. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, that's Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to begin there together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have the digital version on your cell phone with you, there should be copies around you that you can grab in the seats in front of you and be able to follow along in God's Word with us this morning. Uh, What we're trying to do over these weeks in December is really answer this question and, and it's a question that's always going to be significant for us to ask and answer. And, and I, I really believe it's most particularly important come Christmas time because Christ and Christmas is really seen everywhere. And we have Christmas trees and there's Christmas carols and, and, and there's, there's Christmas programs. And you're going to hear people say Merry Christmas and they're going to sing Christmas songs on Christmas specials and, and, and all of those things. And there's the, just the things I love about this season is, is those specials and, and, and just that opportunity that our, our culture provides for us to, to stop and think and and, and enjoy those things together. Uh, but if we're honest, not everybody in giving Christmas gifts or singing Christmas carols is going to have an understanding of the reason for Christmas. And uh, we were, uh, I, I shouldn't say, well, okay, if I'm going to be honest, I have to say we. Uh, it's, it's probably more appropriately said that on my television yesterday was a Hallmark movie that I may have sat in the living room while it was being aired. Um, and, and you've seen one, you feel like you've seen them all, okay? Um, so I walked in, and literally I was like, isn't this the one we watched last year? And I, it probably had the same leading actress, but anyways, all right. Um, at the end of this movie, the, the character is talking about Christmas and uh, you know, we believe in the, the spirit of the season and, and the little baby in the manger that, that gave us all the money we need to go solve this great crisis we have. And I looked at Carrie and I was like, but that's not what Christmas is about. And, you know, like I'm that guy when we watch movies where like I'll, I'll interject stuff like that and it can be frustrating for her. She's like, yeah, but and I was like, no, no, but like the manger never promised them their farm got saved. Like, so it's not the point. So who is Jesus? It's a question perennially before us that has significance to be asked and answered. And as I shared with you a couple weeks ago as we began thinking about this, this will be the question and this will be the place of attack that Christians will always have to defend. Because if you can begin to take shots and break down an understanding of who Christ is, the, the whole thing begins to then unravel very quickly. And so we have to be very clear about who Christ is. And we should not be surprised that this is where we most often see the attacks come. And it should not surprise any of us that there are places in our culture that will use Christian words that are devoid of any Christian significance or meaning. And so for us, we need to make sure we're clear and we let the Bible speak clearly. And so where we are going and where we've been, where we'll be this morning and where we're going is this idea that Jesus is the prophet, he is the priest, he is the king, and he is the gift. 
Two weeks ago, we looked at prophet, and probably the best way to summarize that is just to simply say Jesus speaks. He was the one whom all the Old Testament prophets foretold of. He comes in the line of those Old Testament prophets as fulfillment of a prophecy and prophecies made about him. And he comes now, as the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 will tell us, as the one whom God in these last days has spoken through. Well, Jesus speaks today, and he does so through his word. We have the word of God, which is exactly what he wants us to have and necessary for everything we need for life and godliness. And Jesus speaks today through his word. This morning, we'll look at Jesus as the priest And the big idea of this morning is going to be Jesus intercedes. Next Sunday morning, we'll look at Jesus as king, where he reigns. And then next Sunday evening, we'll think through briefly Jesus as the greatest gift, who gives the greatest gift, that being salvation. These aren't the only things that we can learn about Christ. These are not the only names that are used of Christ. There is a plethora of names regarding Christ. There's a plethora of ways and and things that Christ does. Uh, But we would see at least the first three as the primary offices of Christ. And and there's, there's a big idea in this whole series through December that we're, we're trying to tie some threads between the New Testament and the Old Testament. That, that we might be able to make a little bit of sense between the two of them. So if we kind of wonder what the Old Testament prophet did and why they were important. Well, they foreshadowed Christ as the prophet. And, and the Old Testament priests and the sacrificial system, they were all a foreshadowing of Christ who comes now as the high priest to offer himself as sacrifice. And all of those Old Testament kings were were forerunners and foreshadows of Jesus who comes now as the King of Kings. And we want to tie together some, some threads, excuse me, between the left side of our Bible and the right side of our Bible. Try to see how Jesus is the fulfillment and he's the point. And all the scriptures either point forward to him Or come out on the backside of his work on the cross. So before we jump into Hebrews chapter 1 and look briefly at the first four verses there, let's pray. And then we'll do so and we'll get into Hebrews 1 and fast forward a little bit into 10. Father God, we come now asking you to speak. We're asking you to speak through your word. We're asking you to give clarity through this book that you have inspired. God, we believe you've spoken, and it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. So God, help us listen well here this morning. And God, I pray that your, your, your spirit would, would come and there would be freedom in this room this morning for him to help us understand and make sense of your word. God, may we see Christ as highly exalted, the name above every other name, the whole point of the entire priestly and sacrificial system that the Old Testament gives great detail towards and for. God, may we understand that much more clearly this morning. 
that we have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. And he has interceded for us, and he has sacrificed himself for us once for all. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1, if you've got those verses. We'll look at verses 1 to 4 here, just briefly. Uh, The question of who is Jesus is essentially the question that the writer of Hebrews seeks to answer. And he's writing to a group of Jewish people, they were Hebrews, and he was writing to them to plead with them to not give up. They were facing persecution, they were facing trials and tribulation for their faith in Christ. This group of Jewish Christians had had real opportunities and there was real pressure in their lives to give up on the gospel of Christ and go back to the sacrificial system of priests and animals and blood. And the writer of Hebrews is not only writing to say, let me explain to you who Jesus is. Let me tell you how he's greater than everyone in every way, but let me plead with you to not give up. Don't lose him. And so he begins in the first four verses there, introducing Christ. And we're going to see ten different things in these four verses that the writer of Hebrews tells us about who Jesus is. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So in answering the question right on the front side, who is Jesus? Why should he matter? Why should you not give up on him? The writer of Hebrews says, well, let me in four verses give you ten things about who Jesus is. He's the one and only, or he's the one God has spoken through in these last days. We looked at that last week or two weeks ago, and saw that Jesus is the prophet. The writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the son. He's the heir of all things. Jesus created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. We would look, and we will next week, at that's a kingly function. That's a ruling and reigning function. Jesus made purifications for sin. That's a priestly function. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he is superior to all the angels. So here in this introduction, the writer of Hebrews gives us ten different things in his original audience, ten different things about who Jesus is as he begins to make his argument, do not give up on this man. He is the one whom you must and continually follow. He's, he's greater than everyone in every way. And so then he just begins to unpack that. 
You guys love Melchizedek? Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. You guys love Moses? He's greater than Moses. You guys love Abraham? He's greater than Abraham. You love David? He's greater than David. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Noah. He's greater than them all. So who's Jesus? He's greater than every Old Testament person you guys could pull into memory. And the book of Hebrews just walks through in great detail about all the ways that Jesus is greater than. And in the course of doing so, the author of Hebrews writes 11 different times, specifically referencing Jesus as high priest. Now, we're not going to look through those verses this morning. The verses we'll look through in chapter 10 this morning actually don't say that Jesus is high priest. And so I want you to know that it's a very well-established fact in the book of Hebrews When we get to chapter 10, he's giving some summary thoughts. He's drawing and and tying some loose ends together in in his thoughts and as he communicates. And so Jesus as high priest is all over the book of Hebrews. But we get ourselves and we'll find ourselves in chapter 10. And what I want to do then for the remaining time is look at two different sections in chapter 10. And the first big idea of verses 1 to 10 that we'll focus on is that Jesus intercedes for us and sacrificed himself once for all. We'll then briefly at the tail end look at verses 19 to 22 and really what amounts to be a so what type of section, an application point for this author. We'll see that through Jesus we are now invited into the holy places. And hopefully that makes a little bit more sense as we unpack and get into these verses. So if you can, flip forward to chapter 10 of Hebrews and we'll look at verses 1 to 10 together. And this big idea that Jesus intercedes and sacrificed himself once for all. We'll spend the majority of our time in verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 10, we'll, we'll look at briefly But let's go to verse 1 of chapter 10 together. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How these first four verses function in and what the Hebrew or the writer of Hebrews is intending to do is he makes a big point in verse 1. Verses 2, 3, and 4 then become corroborating evidence to support the point that he has just made, the declaration he has given. So look back at verse 1. Let's look at the point that he has made. And I think the point can be summarized by looking specifically at six different words that he uses there in verse 1. Those words are, the law can never make perfect. That's the big idea of verse 1. If you're into highlighting in your Bible, which I would highly encourage, I've put boxes around those six words. The law can never make perfect. For since 
the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of its realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. We can summarize verse 1 by just saying, the law can never make perfect. And what the author is doing is he is giving us the gospel in the way that, that virtually every part of the New Testament gives us to it. Here's the bad news, and then I'm going to tell you the good news here in just a minute. But first, with the bad news, the law can never make perfect. He says the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The word shadow was used elsewhere in Greek language to refer to somebody who had died. The, the body of a deceased person. They would use this word shadow to describe the, the corpse. It wasn't really the person. It was their shell. We have ways of using even our English language to describe that. It's not really them, but there's a resemblance there. It looks like them, but we know it's not really them. There's representation there, but it's not the full reality. Let's go back to elementary science class here for a minute. Shadows are made when light comes behind an object and shines on that object. So there's shadows from these lights that you might be able to see here on the platform, and it's because there's light shining from behind an object on that object. That's how shadows are created. And the author of Hebrews tells us the law is but a shadow. Now look back with me to Hebrews 9, verse 11. It was a verse that was read earlier during our Advent reading by the Thompson family. I want to look at verses 11 and 12 just briefly because we're going to be able to get our minds then around what is actually causing this shadow and how this shadow is working. Verse 11 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent... Not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So here's what the author of Hebrews is telling us, and I think we can take verses 9. Or chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and chapter 10, and the ideas that are presented there, and maybe begin to understand what exactly is this shadow, and what is it representing, and why is the law a shadow? Okay, so if light comes behind an object, to shine on that object, and then creating a shadow, like we do with shadow puppets and, and all of those things at bedtime when we're supposed to be sleeping and we're not, um, what Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 is telling us is that the Old Testament sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, the priests, the altars, the lampstands, the tables, the cauldrons, what that is, is that is the image that occurs as God shines a light on the heavenly temple. 
Hebrews 9, verse 11. There was a greater and more perfect tent. It was not made with hands, not of this creation. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that God has shined a giant spotlight on this heavenly temple, this heavenly tent, this heavenly tabernacle. And what that has done in his providence and by his design, it is a, it, it cast a shadow that the tabernacle that Moses was given instructions to build represented. But that tabernacle, that temple, those pots, those tables, those priests, those animals were never the true form of the realities. They just were a representation. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse then 12, tells us that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but the means of his own blood, less securing an eternal redemption. But Jesus didn't go into the temple when he was crucified. He was hanging on a cross in Calvary. When Jesus' blood was spilt on the cross and the veil tore in two, he was not in the temple. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that what was seen in the Old Testament system, the tabernacle, the temple, all of that, the priests, the animals, everything, it was a shadow of this heavenly reality. And Christ has now come, and the true form is now more clearly seen. The word true form means an exact replica, a complete representation. Think photography. Think of our ability in today's world to take a picture with our phone and have a very, very precise replica of whatever we just took that picture of. That's this word, true form. So let's go back to the big idea. The law can never make perfect because the law was just a shadow. It was to point forward. It was to tell us and tell them that there was something greater coming. The law was never able, can never make perfect those who draw near. It's just a shadow of the reality. It's not the true thing. The words draw near are words that are significant because they express the reality of what the Old Testament worshiper would have been doing. If you want, you can head on over with me to Leviticus chapter 4. We're going to look at just a few verses there, 27 to 30 in Leviticus chapter 4. But there's some instruction there about the worshipers who were drawing near and what they were, in, or what they were to do. And these, these common people, and in verse 27 of chapter 4, you see at the very beginning, if any one of the common people sin unintentionally. So and that's you and me. That wasn't those of the tribe of Levi. That wasn't those who were part of the Aaronic priesthood. That was the common people. That was the everyday Joes and Susies. If they sin, 
and doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments they ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt. Verse 28, for the sin which he has committed is made known to him. He shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all of the rest of its blood on the base of the altar. Just think briefly to what that tabernacle would have looked like. And there's, there's no way to understand exactly what it would look like. And so we've got some artist renderings based on what the Old Testament gives us. But I, I to be quite honest with you, didn't realize until this week that the common people would have actually made the sacrifice. I, I was under the impression that you know, we kind of roll up to the front, drop our goat off at the gate, the priest takes it to wherever the goat was supposed to be sacrificed and did the dirty work. Well, that's not at all what Hebrews says. That's not at all what we just read in chapter 4. The person coming to bring the offering would come in to the outer courtyard there that you can see. And if you can see, there's some, there's some long rectangles. There's four on the bottom side and there's four on the top side. Those were the slaughter tables. That circle in the middle there is the, bra- or the brazen altar. That's where this sacrifice would have been burned up at. And you would have taken your goat a female without blemish, and you would have led it into this outer courtyard, and you would have stood at the table. You would have put your hand, or perhaps more accurately, that the father of the household would have done so as the representative of his household, and he would have placed his hand on the animal, and then he would have taken the animal's life. And then the priest, as we're told in verse 30, would have taken some of the blood and put it elsewhere. And I was under the impression just until a couple days ago that this was more like drop your kids off for daycare and and just kind of drive away and be done with the whole thing. And that's not at all what this is. And these were the people who were drawing near. But in their drawing near, they could only go so far. They were only allowed in this outer courtyard. You begin to see the, the... the tabernacle as it's in the top kind of left-hand corner of that fenced-in area. There would have been, at the very beginning of that, the holy place, which only the priests were allowed to go into. And behind then the veil, which was not just a thin sheet of cloth, it's probably about a four-inch curtain, four-inch thick piece of cloth. There was separation between the holy place where the The whole priesthood was able to go and had responsibilities. And then the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest, only once a year and only by blood sacrifice was able and authorized to go. And that is where the presence of God would be. And so the law can never make perfect those who draw near, those worshipers, those common people who came as they were needed to come. 
and bring their goat and offer their goat. They could only go so far. Even though they were drawing near, they were prohibited from going any farther. They were not allowed into the holy place. Only one man, only once a year, and only by blood sacrifice was allowed to go into the holy of holy places. Access to God was restrained. And so those who draw near were actually never able to get to God. They were always kept at a distance. And the law was incapable of making them Perfect. Part of the bad news that the, author, that the writer of Hebrews shines a spotlight on is the fact that if the law can never make us perfect, it implies that we're imperfect, needing something to make us perfect. And the law is incapable of doing so. The law cannot take away sins. The writer of Hebrews then gives his supporting arguments. In verse 2, he writes, Otherwise, if the law could make perfect, would they, the sacrifices, not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? That's logically, that follows. It makes sense. If the law could make perfect, you only need one sacrifice, and then you're done. Verse 3 offers the contrast, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. There were yearly sacrifices that were yearly reminders of daily sins. For it is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away Sins. Those words take away means to cause something to stop, to eliminate. And it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cause sin to stop. And this is what the Lord had designed in the Old Testament. This was the Old Covenant. This is what He intended to be. All of this is because he gave the very specific instruction that it was to be, but it was only a shadow, and it was only ever intended to point forward to a truer and greater reality, that being the new covenant where Jesus enacts by his blood. Writing about the new covenant, the prophet Ezekiel says this, speaking on behalf of God as God instructed him to do, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put in, put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to eliminate sin. But the promise of what Jesus would do is that God would put his spirit within us and cause us to obey, cause us to walk in His ways. The writer of Hebrews describes it, the bad news is that we're not perfect. The bad news is that we need a perfection. And the good news we'll see begin to be articulated further in verses 5 to 10. The good news is that Jesus 
intercedes and sacrificed himself once for all. That Jesus is the high priest of the good things that have come. He's the true form of the reality. He's the one that every animal and every priest in the tabernacle and the temple and every instrument and utensil and lampstand and table and altar and cauldron, he's the one they all pointed forward to. That's the goal. I'm going to give you an earthly representation here and now, Old Testament saint, and I want you to think through and obey what I have said to you here, but the goal and the point is Jesus. And the author of Hebrews begins to now give us that good news in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author then helps us. He interprets exactly what he's just quoted from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. And he tells us this in verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The good news is that Jesus has come. And he came for a specific purpose. And that was as the high priest, he came to intercede for his people and sacrifice himself. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There was a greater offering needed. Jesus himself was indeed that offering. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Salvation in the Old Testament was by placing your faith and trust in the promises of God. And this was demonstrated then by obedience to what God said. Salvation in the Old Testament was not given, was not found, was not merited because you went and took your goat to the temple. No, you took your goat to the temple because you believed God and the word that he had spoken that that somehow that animal was going to cover and take away the sins that you had just committed. Salvation in the Old Testament was by placing your faith and trust in the promises of God, which was then demonstrated by obedience to what God had said. And it's the same thing for you and I who live in a New Testament age. Salvation is by putting our faith and trust in the promises of God, which is demonstrated by obedience to what God has said. And Jesus came as the high priest, as the sacrifice, interceded for us, and sacrificed himself once for all. Now there's some amazing things that begin to happen that the writer of Hebrews is going to unpackage. 
and the amazing things. We're going to skip forward to verse 19. We're going to skip a bunch of amazing things, quite frankly. But when we get to verse 19, there's the big idea that I think we'll see there is that through Jesus, we are now invited into the holy places. Look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. There's a lot of things in there, but before we begin to unpack that, I will just simply comment briefly to tell you that our understanding of verses 19 to 22 are in large measure going to be directly impacted by our view of God, our view of how holy He is, our view of how just He is, our view of how righteous He is, our view of how, of how God He is. And if we have a really high view of God, I think we're going to be wowed by these verses. If we have a, a low view of God where we're, we're, you know, He's not holy and righteous and we, we, we kind of trifle with His godness and, and there, there's, not, there's not a healthy awe and reverence that we have for Him, we're, we're going to find ourselves perhaps going, well, that's nice, it's cute, glad it's now and not then, but it, and the idea here is access. Because the writer of Hebrews uses the words draw near again. And it's a command given in verse 22. Let us draw near. Now in verse 4 he had just told us. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. It is impossible. In verse 1 he told us the law can never make perfect those who draw near. The idea here is access. And access is a huge deal seen throughout the scriptures. Adam and Eve enjoyed an access that was unstained by sin. They walked with God in the cool of day. They had a relationship with God that you and I, quite frankly, cannot fathom here and now. It was sinless until Adam took a bite of the fruit and disobeyed God and everything radically changed in that moment. But up until that point, their access to God was unstained by sin. There was no barriers separating them and God. And then access in the tabernacle and temple, as we just thought through briefly, that was restrained by the veil. And so it was only the priest that could go into the holy places, and it was only the high priest once a year by blood sacrifice that could go into the presence of God behind the veil and the curtain. Access in the New Testament, New Covenant access, has been obtained in Christ. And our future access to God, where one day we will be with Him and He will be with us and we will spend eternity in His presence, where there is no sin, death, shame, sickness, that is proclaimed as our great hope. Through Jesus, we are now invited into the holy places. Through Jesus, we are now given access to God. 
Look back at 19. Let's see what the author of Hebrews, what he does to develop this idea. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, they are able to do with confidence something that the Old Testament saints were never able to do. Only one man a year and only by blood sacrifice was able to go into the holy of holy places, into the presence of God. And they sent him in there with a rope tied around his leg because if he would have gone in, somehow done something and fallen dead, nobody else was allowed to go in there. And so they'd have to pull him out. But now these people, these believers are told, you can with confidence... Go in there. You can go through because there is a new and living way that has been opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross and in the temple, when Jesus yielded his spirit and the curtain in the temple tore, the author of Hebrews is telling us That that temple tearing was a foreshadowing of Christ's body being laid down and crucified on the cross. And it opened a way, a new and living way, that it was opened by Christ, who is our great priest over the house of God. And the command is for us to draw near. For us to, with confidence, draw near. Near And this is confidence that we come based on the blood of Jesus Christ. It's confidence that he was the perfect sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. Confidence that you and I are now welcomed into the presence of God. What was unthinkable for the Old Testament Jew, you and I are now given permission and even a command to go and do. Enter. Do so with confidence. Go through the curtain into the holy places. We go with confidence because in Christ, if God is for us, who can be against us? We go with confidence even though we we don't celebrate sin, we don't promote sin, but we have a confidence that even when we do, as we do, we are still inseparable from the love of God in Christ Jesus because he's a greater sacrifice And he was the once and for all sacrifice that did remove sin. And so as you and I still struggle in our daily walk, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law could not do because it was only a shadow by sending his son in the likeness of human flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. We now with confidence are invited in. And it's because our salvation is not based on anything that we do. It's based on everything that Christ has done. Because he interceded and he sacrificed himself. And now through Jesus we are invited into the holy places, into the presence of God. So let's just think through briefly then why, why this matters. Well, in many ways, it goes back to the bad news, good news. And the bad news is that we're not perfect. 
We have something in and of ourselves, outside of faith in Christ, we are, we are separated from God. We are not perfect. The good news is that Jesus intercedes for us and sacrificed himself once for all. This is not based on anything that we have done. As Paul would write in Ephesians 2, this is not of our own doing. This is not of works. Our salvation is based on what Christ has done for us. And so you don't have to go find a goat that's without spot or blemish. I'm really grateful none of you brought a goat this morning. You don't need to. There's not a number of Sundays that you have to attend church before you can be saved. Okay, you're not getting any extra credit with God when you come on the 53rd Sunday this week or this year. Okay? This is not bonus points. There's no amount of money you have to put into the offering plate to be accepted by God. There's no list of vices that you have to stay away from just so that you'll be good. There's no amount of Hail Marys you need to pray. There's no amount of penance that you need to perform for the sins that you have committed. It is nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. It's Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He intercedes for us and he has sacrificed himself for us once for all. And the gift of God's salvation is not given to you because you made the nice list. Because God's not Santa. And I think I have said this every December since I have been here. And I plan to say it every December until the Lord calls me home. All right? Santa is the exact opposite of the gospel. And, and, and folks, and, and parents, I've got young kids in the house, and, and there's reasons we don't do Santa, but here's the primary. If our kids grow up believing that the gifts we give them are based on their performance, how are they ever going to let the gospel seep deeply into their souls that God's gift of salvation is not based on their performance? So if our kids are bad and we go, well, you're on the naughty list and you're getting coal unless you work really hard to get yourself on the nice list, how are they going to have any concept of what the gospel is where, the God, where God says, you know what, no, you're all on the naughty list and in my grace as a free gift to you that you do not deserve, here is my son. And so we don't be good for goodness sakes. We trust in Jesus Christ. Not to earn favor with God. Not to earn some gift. We have to be so careful that we do not make gifts conditional on obedience. Because God's gift of his son to us was not conditional on our obedience. Through Jesus, we have now been brought into the presence of God himself. We've been invited into the holy places. We've been commanded to draw near. God's told us, I want you to come. There's no longer a veil separating you 
from me because my son paid it all and you can come through his body. You can come with, with having placed your faith and trust in him and you are welcome to draw near. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Jesus as our high priest has interceded for us and sacrificed himself once for all. And he was the fulfillment of every shadow in the Old Testament that God had established. And through him and because of what he has done, we are now invited and commanded to draw near into the very presence of God. Creator of the universe says, I want you to come here. I want to have a relationship with you. I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be my children. And as Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Our sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The band's going to come and lead us in that hymn. Would you pray with me as they come? God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have sent Jesus and in your love, you sent your one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, we thank you that in, in Jesus we can be reconciled to you. That he has come as the great high priest and has interceded once for all. And he has sacrificed himself for us, both as the high priest and as the lamb. God, help us to understand more of what this means, the magnitude of what this is and how, how amazing this, this salvation is. It's, it's not just a ticket to heaven. It's, it's, a, it's a command to draw near into your presence now with confidence because of what Jesus has done. God, help us to marvel at these gospel truths God, help this to fuel our worship to you. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.